Our scriptural passage of reflection this morning comes from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. That passage reads like this. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. The third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the sacrificial knife. The two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, My father, and he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns, its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said, It will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 in just a moment. And our theme is heroes. We're continuing in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And today we want to look at how and why God tests our faith. And this is kind of a heavy subject. And I want to start off, I'm going to use kind of two very heavy, difficult stories uh, to type, talk about this subject today. Uh, one that we'll look at here in, in a few moments is the book of Job, obviously, or the life of Job. And uh, really difficult, because when you look at Job, the reason that he suffered was because he was righteous. Not because he did anything wrong, but because he, in fact, was righteous. Job will endure a tremendous amount of suffering. It's, it's a difficult book. It's a difficult story, because it's so visceral, and it's so difficult for us to understand today, and it just doesn't seem right, doesn't seem fair, and so we struggle with that in many ways. But then there's the story of Abraham, and this one's even probably more difficult because here's Abraham being told by God to go and offer his son as a sacrifice. Now, I want us to look at just a little bit of theology before we get into this text, and I'm going to give you some theology to try to help you understand what's going on here, and quite frankly, it's not going to make you feel better, okay? 
And that's not what theology is intended to do. It's not supposed to just make you feel good, all right? Uh, there's really no such thing as feel-good theology, by the way. It's just the revelation of God. And if that makes you, sometimes that inspires us, sometimes it breaks us. Uh, but God's purpose was never just to make us feel good uh, when he spoke, all right? But nevertheless, I, I want us to understand, I think it's theologically important for us to have a little bit of this understanding as we look at this text. To begin with, as we look at this story that Tommy just read, uh, as we consider this text, uh, I think it's important for us to understand uh, that we live in a day and an age where the canon is closed. Now, what do I mean by that? The canon is closed. Well, what I mean is that all the Bible has been given to us today. It has all been given in its entirety. So the 66 books that are in our Bible here today, that is the conclusion of the canon. When the book of Revelation was completed, that was, in fact, the end. There's no more Bible to be written. God has revealed himself through his word. The canon has been closed. During the time of Abraham, and really the time of the characters of the Scriptures, the canon is open. Bible is, in fact, not only happening, but much of it is being written as well. So, as we consider that, when God is speaking to Abraham, there is no Bible. If you'll go back in your history, you realize there was Adam and Eve. Uh, then we see the flood in chapter 9. And now the world has kind of been restarted. And, and Abraham comes on the scene in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. And God says, look, Abraham, I want you to follow me. I, he gives him direct revelation and says, I want you to follow me. He goes, where? I don't know. I, I'm not going to tell you right now. God knew, but he's, I'm not telling you. I want you to just pick up and follow me, move your family, and when you get there, I'll tell you. And so in that process, God is speaking, I believe, not only directly, uh, but verbally to him. Canon is open. So there's direct divine revelation coming to Abraham. That is not the case for us today. The Bible has been written. God has clearly revealed himself through his word. The Holy Spirit moves in our lives and directs us, all right? But when there is no Bible and the Holy Spirit does not dwell uh, as it does today, the direct revelation of God has come, and that is where Scripture is coming from, okay? So it's a far different scenario than today. And that's why we have to be careful. Today we'll go, I think... I think God told me to do this. God, God said for me to go do this. Well, let me tell you, this is not the day, the day of open canon. God speaks and moves through the Holy Spirit, but recognize that you are fallible in your interpretation. Do you see that? The Word of God is infallible. In other words, it is always correct. But sometimes we misinterpret and misunderstand things. And, and, let, and I know some of you are going to be disturbed by this and confused, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about it for just a second anyway. Um, sometimes people will say this, God told me to go do this. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, God, the Spirit of God has led me. And I think that certainly happens today. But the problem is, when you say God told me, and that doesn't happen, then that's in direct conflict to the character and the Word of God. Because God doesn't tell you to do something. Ah, I made a mistake on that one. Missed you. Sorry, buddy. I'll get you next time right. You see, God is divine. He's perfect. He's omnipotent. And so when he speaks, it's truth, and it always comes to pass. Sometimes we will interpret other things to be God. 
Sometimes we will hear other voices. Never forget that there is another voice in the world today. It's not simply one. And he is competing for your heart, soul, and mind. And if you can't have it, he wants to distract it. So recognize what God says, what God will leave, will never go in contradiction to Scripture. It will never violate, violate his character and his principle. The word has been given in fullness. All right? Number two, when we look at this story, it's important for us uh, to recognize that not only has the canon closed, uh, but also in the time of Abraham, in the time of the Old Testament, up into the time of Christ, the firstborn was always committed to Yahweh God. For those who were faithful believers, followers of Yahweh God, the firstborn was committed to them. Okay, Certainly the first son, but even the first animal, the first son was dedicated and committed. Abraham knows of this principle, and he knows that God has full right to his son. And so there was a process. Matter of fact, you go back, you can see it in Exodus and in Numbers, that you would go through for the redemption and the sacrifice of your son. But Abraham knows, rightfully, this son belongs to God Almighty. And thirdly, uh, something we call typology. Uh, also an, another concept very closely related called foreshadowing. This is a foreshadowing of what is to come in the future. Mount Moriah is not a long distance from Calvary. Somewhere between 1,500 to 2,000 years later, God will ultimately require his son to go up on this mountain and to literally die for the sins of the world, to die for mankind. Here's a picture, an Old Testament foreshadowing of what will occur, how God will ultimately save mankind through his son. A picture of his one and only son being offered as a sacrifice and a ransom for mankind. So we see the typology, we see the price of the redemption, and then we also understand that the canon is open. Now with that understanding, let's move forward and let's talk about our subject matter today. Testing. God certainly allows tests to come into our life today. And there's four primary ways that happen. There are more than this, but four primary ways that it occurs. Commands, God's commands in Scripture. Again, his direct revelation through his word. Number two, another way that he tests us is through money. We talked about that last week. Number three, blessings. What do I mean by blessings? Sometimes we're tested by the blessings we receive. And by the way, many people struggle just as much, if not more, in a period of blessings than they do with struggle. Because things start going well, and maybe the money starts to coming in, and the job starts to promote, and I'm busy, 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 God, I don't have time right now. And the blessings are tests that we aren't able to pass. What we're, in fact, sometimes saying is, I can't handle the blessings. And certainly suffering, we're all aware of that. We're tested through the process of suffering. As C.S. Lewis says, God whispers in our joy, but he screams in our pain. So we're tested to trust God continually. Why is that? Well, first of all, 
I think we have to recognize certainly that test exists. That's a good place to become to start with. Test exists. We know that uh, because if we look at the book of James, chapter one, verse two through four, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. James chapter 1, verse 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, when God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say that he is tempted. God does not tempt, but Satan tempts. God will use the same situation to test us. A trial that comes along, Satan will use it to tear us down, to tempt us to have us fall. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what type of test are they? Well, there's really two types of tests. The first type of test is the test that shows you what you don't know. It just maybe just kind of makes you feel bad. Maybe it weeds you out. Remember, if, if you went to college, maybe some of you that went to school, remember there's that class in your major that they kind of weeded you out? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, most people don't make it out of here. Uh, I, the school that I went to, um, two-thirds of the incoming freshmen were pre-med majors. It was the school to go to for pre-med in our, in our state, and about 99% uh, matter of fact, the last two years I was there, 100% of all the students who could complete the medical, uh, the pre-med program got into med school. Uh, the problem was only about 10% of the people who started making 90% would watch out. And there was a class called organic chemistry. A lot of my friends who thought they were going to be doctors and God changed their mind uh, during the organic chemistry process, all right? Some of you might be familiar with that. Uh, I remember when I was playing football. First year I was playing football, seventh grade, Coach Jimmy Frendenberg. He goes, he goes, look. There's 85 of you boys out here. I got 40 uniforms, but I don't have to cut people because we're going to run, and we're going to run some more. We're going to exercise, and we're going to run some more. It's going to be hot, and some of you are going to quit. And the 40 that need to be here, you'll stay, and the rest of you all quit. And he was right. Matter of fact, we had two extra uniforms when he got done. <laughs> he went us out. I mean, it was back in the old days. He wouldn't give us water. We'd go for about an hour and a half. We're like, down. no water, no water. You know, and I mean, today, you know, we'd throw him in jail, but... Uh, they, he was just weeding us out back then, and it worked. That's what Satan does. He weeds you out. His face not real. I want to test you, and I want to tempt you to disqualify. You make you feel like you don't fit, like you don't belong. Just quit. See, when God tests, it's not to get you to quit. It's to grow you. It's to mature you. It's to fortify you. It's to strengthen you. Interesting illustration uh, you know, the biosphere um, experiment they did back in 91, back in Arizona. Uh, and they were basically creating this culture inside this dome where life could be sustained. And there were several reasons, several things they were hoping to glean from this. But basically, you know, if there was a nuclear destruction or if the, you went to another world, could we build an environment that sustains life as we know it, where you could feed yourself, where there would be animals and plenty of oxygen, all this kind of stuff. So anyway, so they build this dome. It's almost four acres. Uh, it has a pond and water. It has everything that they'd need. It has certain animals 
uh, vegetation. So they start that process, and uh, one of the things they found out, which they were not intending, uh, that was, was not the purpose, was that when they initially put these uh, plants in the ground, particularly the trees, that they grew really rapidly and fast. The soil content, the temperature was right, there was the right amount of water, everything was great, and they began to grow like three and four times faster than they ever thought, uh, than they would have normally. But what the problem was, at about a year to 18 months, these trees all start to fall down. And scientists at the University of Columbia later discovered, they said, the reason that those trees didn't make it was because there was no wind inside the dome. And the wood was so soft that when it got to a certain point, it would just fall over. The root systems were so weak because there was no wind. There was never any pressure. There was never any force against it as opposed to the trees in the forest. And outside where the wind is constantly blowing, strengthening the bark and the the makeup of the tree, the root system. It's an interesting concept that with no wind, the trees literally couldn't continue to grow and to live. They would simply fall over because of the weakness of their structure. We want to believe and we must recognize that God is about the business of growing us and that he's more concerned about our growth and about our godliness than he is our happiness, quite frankly. Now, if you would, for just a moment, let's read together our text here, just a couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. By faith, when he was tested, there's our word, tested, offered up Isaac. Isaac is the child in whom the promise is given through. God has told him, Isaac will be the one in whom I will bless, and I will make a nation uh, that I will bless mightily. They will be, again, the primary mechanism where of which God, Yahweh, is revealed, and God covenants with him. And so he receives the promise, and if the promise is with Isaac, Continue in verse 18. The Bible tells us, Of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall be your offspring name. Verse 19. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively he did receive him back. So what is occurring there? We read the story earlier. God says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, and I want you to march him up to the top of Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him. And matter of fact, If you remember, when they get to the foot of the mountain, what does Isaac say? Father, the wood. And he even says, here's the mechanism to make the fire. But where's the offering? Where's the sacrifice? And in our English language, it's translated, God will provide. It literally says, God will see. We will see. God will see. And so when they get to the top of the mountain there at Moriah, what happens? He is going through the process. He is being faithful. And it's interesting. A lot of times we'll say, that Abraham guy, man, he's got some faith. I mean, man, I, I could never do that. And how in the world did you do that? Just, they don't make people like that anymore. Well, remember his history. This is the same guy who twice, not once, but twice, he's going through, uh, he's going through areas where he kind of gets intimidated. Uh, it looks like they got some big armies here. The king or the leader of that area sees his wife. His wife is very attractive. And what does he say? They say, who's that? And he goes, 
that's my sister. That's what he said, not once, but twice. Because he's afraid they're going to kill him and take her. He goes, that's my sister. Well, if it's your sister, we're going to be really nice to you. We're going to try to, you know, give you some nice gifts, and, and uh, we'll go ahead and take her. But he says, it's my sister, not once, but twice. So, I mean, we're not talking about a bastion of faith. I'm sure what, I wonder what his wife, no wonder his wife got mad at him sometimes. You know what I mean? <laughs> Number two, this is the same guy. God makes promise, said, hey, through your wife, Sarah, I am going to give you the promise. I am going to give you a son. And what does he do? God, I'm kind of old. Sarah is definitely too old. We're going to help you on this one. So he goes into his concubine, Hagar. And has a son through her. Has a son through one of his servants, Hagar. It's not God's, that was not what God was intending. It's not what he wanted. It, it was in violation of the promise that he'd given. And what happens after that? For 14 years, he hears no revelation from God. It is silent. So when God comes back and he gives him a son, and now he's in that place again, he goes, you know, every time I have not trusted you, Lord. Every time you've given me revelation and I've gone my own way, I've tried to use my own wisdom. It's not worked. I will trust you even in this, even in this ultimate test. And so that's what's transpiring here. So what do we get from this? Well, let's first of all, let's talk about for just a moment understanding test. Understanding the test. Tests are usually not situations we want. And usually not. Not usually like I used to like when I was in second or third grade. Every once in a while our teacher would give a test and go, the answers are all in the back. But I'd like you to do them first. I was thinking, I'll just look at the answers first. This will be a good test. I don't mind taking these tests at all. But I didn't learn anything. Just copying the answers out of the back of the book. That's the way we want tests now. Hey, I'd like all the answers. I'd be happy to take your test. If you'll just give me the answers in advance. We want to be like the tree with no wind. But tests only work when you struggle when you have to study, when they require effort. And so the truth of it is, tests are almost never situations you want. I mean, every once in a while, maybe God will give you so much money and say, now, what are you going to do with this big, vast pot of money? That's not usually the way it works. Usually it's, what are you going to do without it? Okay? So that's not normally the way it works. Number two, tests sometimes make it seem foolish to trust God. You ever been in one of those situations where this doesn't make any sense to trust God here? I just know this is, I don't know this is good. I'll tell you about a story about a guy in our church a couple of weeks ago who uh, had come. He was traveling a lot, 20, 22 days a week, leave on Sunday night or Monday morning, come back Friday night, and has a couple children and just felt like he was missing his family, not having that experience, and just really got convicted that's what he needed to do. He needed to make a change. So um, he was doing very well with his con- country. Uh, his company was a VP, but he was traveling all the time. So he began to talk to his wife and talk to his family and got, felt li- convicted. I need, to, I need to change, and when I make this transition, I'm going to make less money. I'll be at home, but I'm going to make less money. And he felt like this was something the Holy Spirit was leading him to do. He felt confident. His family felt confident. Well, he goes in to, to tell them, and they go, we don't want you to do this. Matter of fact, the, the owner said, Look, you stay with me, and I, my plans are to make you the CEO, and you'll make a whole lot more than you're making right now. What about travel? Oh, you'll travel even more than you do now, more than I do now. He said, I don't think that's what I'm supposed to do. Let me, let me think about it. He comes back and talks to his family, and 
And they go, yeah. We think, um, you know, and all those thoughts go through your mind. Look, I can pay for college. I can pay our house off. I can pay everything off. I'll have, I'll have, all our problems will be solved. I just won't see my family. And he had to come back and reassess. And his family said, no, let's, let's go with what you said. So now there's a huge disparity between what he would have had and what he felt like. That, that just doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? If we look in the human economy, why would God lead me to make less money? Is that possible? Why would God ask me to take a stand that's going to cause me to lose my job? That's just not right. God, God, God wouldn't do that. Hey, this same God who told Abraham to take his son up the mountain and sacrifice him. For us to do that, hey, it ain't a big stretch for him. Again, remember what he's doing. He's in the business of creating us and building us and growing us into the image of Christ. We think it's success, but he's got a whole nother uh, biosphere when it comes to what successful is. So, if that's what tests are, if that's why I need tests or understand tests, and why are they so necessary? Well, they force us to recognize what it is that we love the most. A.W. Tozer, the great Canadian theologian and, and a preacher, put it this way. He said that Isaac was Abraham's love slave. That had become his, his uh, idol of worship was his son, Isaac. And God knows this, and he is seeking to put himself back upon the throne. And so he says, I want you to take what you love the most, because it, you love it even more than me, and I want you to place it upon the altar. And in fact, he does that. The truth of it is God still calls us to put everything upon the altar. Our children, our spouse, our job, our wife, to put it on the altar and say, God, it's yours. I'm a steward, and I want to steward, steward it well, but ultimately, you are who I worship. You'd go, God never asked me to do anything like that. I, think, I don't think God would ask me to do things like that. It's kind of crazy. You know, yes, it, it will be crazy to us. It will be contradictory, but here's the thing. If you only worship a God that agrees with you, that would do everything that you would do, you, in fact, are the God. It's just a figment of your imagination. You've produced a God in your mind that says, this is the way God should work, and this is the way you'd act. And if he never contradicts your feelings, your emotion, or your logic, then he's not God at all. He's an idol that you've produced within your mind. Trusting God will sometimes contradict his promises. And this is a hard one. Sometimes they contradict his promises. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I read, you know, my favorite promise. Philippians 4.19. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. All things work together for good. Romans 8.28. For those who love the Lord and, called accord, and are called according to his purpose. So we read those and we think, I'm going to get all the stuff I need. It's all going to be taken care of. It'll all be good. And God's looking at his kingdom. And he's looking at his economy. And he's saying, you know what? It's all going to work to the best for my good and for the kingdom of God. And it's ultimately going to be for the best for you. Now, you may not feel it here on this earth. This is actually not your temporary. This is actually your temporary home. This whole thing you call life is your test. So I want you to trust me that ultimately it will be right. If I don't make it right here, 
I'll make it light right in the eternity to come. It's a hard message, but it's true. We must recognize that they're necessary and understand it. As we continue here, tests are necessary because they force us to, to figure out what we worship the most and they force us to recognize where we are spiritually. But what about passing the tests? The Bible says in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham reasoned. As a matter of fact, sometimes your translation, for some of your translation, it may even use that word in Hebrews. Abraham reasoned that God could correct this situation, so to speak, that he could bring him back. He reasoned. Why did, what does that mean, he reasoned? So many times we think, well, you know what faith is. It's just a blind leap in the dark. Just jump out there. Uh, you feel led something to do. You just do it. Go ahead. Just move on. The Bible didn't say that. The Bible says that he reasoned. And what does it mean he reasoned? How did he reason? Well, he considered the faithfulness of God. That every time God had made a promise, he had fulfilled it. Every time God had asked him to do something, then God had been there to sustain him. He reasoned that when God speaks and he obeyed, that that was in fact the intentionality in which God had purposed. And that's what he was supposed to do. And when he had gone a different direction, things had not worked out well at all. He reasoned. He used the logic, he used the revelation that had been given to him, and he trusted God would be the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, in fact, did reason. Obeying God, even when it leads to death, maybe the death of a financial dream, the death of a job, death in many, comes in many ways, doesn't it? Sometimes physically. But believing that God has said, you know what? This world's not our home here. That the truth of it is, is that God is looking at us from an eternal perspective. And that he's going to make all things right one day. And it's like we talked about last week. Sometimes we go, we read the scriptures and we go, well, this whole heaven thing with a harp and a crown and the jewels. I don't really want a harp and a crown and some jewels. I don't wear stuff like that. You know, and particularly as men, we look at it and we go, I'm really not that motivated by that. But if we understand that God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, that this earth's going to be remade, and that he's going to raise us incorruptible, perfected, in one of the greatest joys in heaven is relationship. Relationship with Christ, God Almighty. Relationship with those who've gone before us in perfection, in full health, and emotionally, physically, spiritually, in every way, the intense joy. When we look at that's where God's, that's what God's creating. And these tests are preparing us for the real joy, for the real life. Not the test model, but eternity. Then obeying God, even when it leads to sacrifice is understandable. Trusting God, even when it seems to contradict His promises, our logic, our understanding, and also believing God will provide a resurrection for His glory. He will resurrect. He will not waste any pain. He will not waste any suffering. He will not waste any testing. He will use it to grow us 
and for the ultimate good of his kingdom. How do we get this power to pass these tests? Well, first of all, look to the cross. Look to the cross. We mentioned earlier what the Hebrew says. It says, he looked to the mountain. The God who sees, Abraham tells him that it will be seen, it will be provided on the mountain. Just as Calvary provided as we see God in the flesh coming and suffering and dying on our behalf. We look to the cross. We look to the Christ who died for us. We believe the promises for Christ's sake. That he will fulfill ultimately all promises. And that God is preparing our best life for eternity. And that he's going before us. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 14. I go before you to prepare a place. And I'll come again to receive you. That's the good news. I go back to the life of Job. You remember Job? He's suffering because he's righteous. He comes on the scene. The Bible tells us he's blameless. The Bible says he's righteous, that he fears and loves God. The Bible says that he is very wealthy. Matter of fact, it calls him the, great, the greatest man in the East, the most powerful, the wealthiest. He's got everything. And he's offering sacrifices on his children's behalf as needed. I mean, he fears and loves God. But then these tests come his way. And he gets hit hard, literally from the north, south, east, and west. You ever been in that position? You're just getting hit from all sides. So his enemies come from the north and the south, and they raid and pillage his livestock, which was the primary mark of wealth back then. They kill his servants, and then the lightning comes from the sky and kills some more and destroys what he has left of his livestock. And then if that's not enough, a tornado comes and the house falls down and kills his children. Wow. Tough stuff. And what does he say? The Bible says that he kneels and he worships and he says, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. He continues to believe. Not that he's not in agony. Not that he's not angry. Not that he didn't have big questions. Not that he's not suffering immensely. But he continues to believe and to worship. And his wife comes to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Because at this time, his body is filled with boils. And he's literally taking the pieces of a pot here, and he's trying to scrape and scratch the boils off of his arms and his body. And if that's not enough, he has a few bozos, his friends, who come and tell him, look, obviously you've sinned. Confess your sin. Get over this. What have you, not been, what have you been doing? How have you been doing this? What have you been doing wrong? God doesn't allow things like this to happen to good people. And they give the worst theology, and people still are using it today, by the way. If you're good, God will be good to you. If you'll just do what you're supposed to do, you'll never suffer. You'll never have difficult times. Terrible theology. That was 5,000 years ago. We're still using it. I want you to see a picture of this. That ultimately, even when he suffered even when everything was taken away he still worshiped in pain and misery with lots of questions with lots of doubts with lots of struggles but yet he worshiped let's pray father in heaven 
we come to you this morning recognizing that you are the giver of all things. And as tests come into our lives, there's so many times we'd say, God, I, I can't do it or I never could do it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that the same God of yesterday, that you are God today and will be God tomorrow, and that you will sustain us by your righteous right hand. And when things don't make sense, we don't understand, it doesn't mean you're not in control. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow, that we might be able to encounter and endure the simple trials that come into every man's life into every person who walks this earth. The truth of it is, every one of us in this room, one day will lose someone that we love. We will lose something that we love. We will experience difficulties in health. The question is not if, but when. God, I pray that before that time, you would prepare us with the winds of life. That, God, we would not respond in bitterness but in submission and worship to say, God, we need you. And that we trust that this is not all there is. That real life is coming in abundance see, and in fullness. And until that day, we trust you and we love you. And we ask for your strength and mercy. Lord, if there's one here today that does not know you, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit that you would help them to recognize that we're all sinners and that you are perfect and holy God and that you have provided a way to know you through your Son, through the literal and sacrificial Son of God who gave his life for us, that lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we should have died and took our sins upon the cross and redeemed us and paid the price of the sacrifice for all who would trust and believe. So if there's one here today that has not done that, I pray, Lord, that they take that step and they would receive your grace and forgiveness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.